And now I am delighted to introduce uh, not one, uh, but two outstanding speakers today. Again, for our 2023 Andy and Bev Hansel Endowed Chair in Applied Healthcare Ethics Lectureship. I am joined by Kevin Dirksen, who serves as Senior Director of the Providence Center for Healthcare Ethics and the Andy and Bev Hansel Endowed Chair in Applied Healthcare Ethics. And the chair was established in 1998 to ensure the presence of ethical expertise in both patient care and education here within Providence. Kevin has published broadly um, in national and international peer-reviewed publications, such as the American Journal of Bioethics, the Journal of Pain and Symptom Management, Ethics, Medicine, and Public Health, among others. Kevin lectures widely, um, not only here on the local and regional uh, level, but also nationally and internationally. We are also joined by Anthony Harrington, who serves as the Chief Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Officer for Providence Health Services here in the Oregon region. Anthony is recognized as an expert in DEI strategist who is adept at developing and implementing initiatives that strengthen culture, grow the diversity of teams, and increase employee engagement. And prior to his current role, Anthony contributed special expertise to integrate DEI across teams at Nike. He was also the president and founder of the Harrington Group, a diversity, diversity and inclusion consultancy. We're so uh, delighted and fortunate to be joined by these two outstanding teachers and speakers today. Welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you. So really, this uh, lecture this year is an effort uh, that Anthony and I uh, embarked on together to imagine how ethics and the work of diversity, equity, and inclusion really come together and work for justice alongside our clinical partners, some of which are in this room, operational partners helping run the business of healthcare, and it's a kind of a, a passion project for us to share with you where we see the intersection in the hopes that this can inspire you and some of the work that you do to do justice work every day. And so this is the, the home for this talk today is the Hansel Endowed Lecture, uh, which Laura mentioned today. And we really envision this as an opportunity for the center to give back to Providence and to link up with some of our subject matter experts in ways that we hope are gonna be exciting um, as the, the series moves from its third year well into the future um, uh, uh, to come. And so we're hoping that you will see, like we see, that some of this vocabulary, some of this imagination around justice really allows us to think about how we can work together to promote a related concept of health justice together. And so we're hoping to share with you some thoughts, walk through some cases, situations, scenarios, and save a little bit of time at the end for Q&A for us to be able to engage the audience both in person uh, as well as virtual. So our introduction, um, and we have no uh, conflicts of interest to disclose today, a last minute slide edit that will be uh, forthcoming here, uh, but uh, wanted to at least introduce to you um, this notion of having two of uh, individuals that do uh, what we think is in pretty important work, right? In ethics and in DEI, um, coming together and showing that intersection. But some of you may be sitting out there thinking, well, what is an ethicist? What is a diversity professional? So Anthony, on the diversity side, what, what, what do you do here at Providence? Yeah, well, I, I appreciate that question. What do I do? Because different diversity and inclusion professional, professionals might answer that differently. My orientation with diversity, equity, and inclusion was learning that it actually was a driver for business growth um, and new talent solutions. So for me, how I think about diversity, equity, and inclusion is working to create structures within organizations where it's thought of as a business imperative. Um, and I work on integrating diversity, equity, and inclusion across the organization, no different than this conversation with ethics today, um, in a way where it strengthens our talent solutions, um, strengthens a culture of inclusion and belonging so every caregiver 
Every patient that comes in our facilities feels like they have an opportunity to uh, thrive um, and create mechanisms to measure what matters. Uh, that's what I do, and I do it with passion um, because of that orientation that um, it just makes us better. That's really helpful to hear. And so on the other side, in terms of what's an ethicist, uh, some of you will have worked with us in some different arenas ranging from clinical ethics consultation, sort of the pager version of you have an ethics consult for us and our team can provide you with some support in navigating a complex patient care situation or something like this today, our ethics education programming, uh, which sometimes means sessions that we're offering or sometimes experts that we're bringing into the fold. Uh, just a few weeks ago, you heard from Dr. Yolanda Wilson from St. Louis University in this very room uh, talking about some of her work as a philosopher examining questions of race and intersectionality and questions about whose normal do we really return to after this pandemic. And so the work of an ethicist is really largely around consultative support, around education, some organizational ethics, but really it's about integrating that ethical culture into the work that we do every day. And so as Anthony and I have worked together over the years, we've really come back to this notion of justice as being a place where there's an intersection. And again, we're gonna keep spinning that out for you um, here in this session. But before we go on, I do want to define a couple of terms, a little bit of jargon in that opening slide in terms of a moral vocabulary and a prophetic imagination. What does that mean? Well, let's be simple and say that a moral vocabulary is really about having a common language. It's about having a way of discourse with one another that we can identify what are those um, key pieces that we're trying to steer ourselves to and what's the language we use to describe that. And then as you'll see that part of justice is really necessary to look down um, the road, to look at the horizon. We need to think about not only where we are and what some of the injustices um, are that are before us, but where we want to go in terms of a more just oriented culture. But before we go too much further, um, we wanna begin um, in the tradition of Providence with a very short reflection um, and we'll hand back to Anthony. Yeah, the reflection today is fortuitous. We're approaching Juneteenth, which is Freedom Day. So that, that'll set up uh, my short reflection. Juneteenth commemorates June 19th, 1865, the date in which enslaved people in Galveston, Texas, finally received the news they were free. This was two years after um, Abraham Lincoln's uh, Emancipation Proclamation and a year after the Senate signed it. It marks the day when federal troops arrived and U.S. General Gordon Granger stood on Texas soil and read General Orders Number 3. The people of Texas are informed that in accordance with a proclamation from the executive of the United States, all slaves are free. All slaves are free. Imagine that moment. When African-Americans became free, the entire country became free. And that is the spirit of Juneteenth. So my reflection is a quote from a civil rights activist from the 1920s. His name is Asa Philip Randolph, who said, justice is never given. It is exacted and the struggle must be continuous. For freedom is never a final act. Freedom is never a final fact, but a continuing evolving process to higher and higher levels of human, social, economic, political, and religious relationships. A. Philip Randolph read that. Um, what really resonated with me is this notion that it's not given. It's freedom and justice is a struggle. Sometimes we take a step backwards and two steps forward. While after the Civil War, the Emancipation Proclamation, gone were the brutalities and indignities of enslaved life. Um, Four million African-Americans celebrated their newfound freedom, both privately um, and in public jubilees. You're free, but there actually wasn't any resources at the time for those many of those 4 million Africans. Um, and as a result of this, there was high rates of infectious disease, such as tuberculosis and smallpox. In those days, we didn't have the healthcare systems that we all have today. 
Um, the only hospitals that existed were more like institutions for the very poor or for people who get sick and don't have any family members. Many of them did not accept African-American and black citizens. It actually wasn't until Medicare passed in 1965 until hospitals were truly forced to desegregate. Why? Um, in 1963, this, or 1964, the Civil Rights Act passed, and which said that discriminating on the basis of race is unconstitutional. Within four months of Medicare passing in 1965, over 3,000 hospitals desegregated. I like to give that context for two reasons. One, I talked about Juneteenth and the Emancipation Proclamation, or the Juneteenth in 1965. My great-grandfather, was born in 1868 um, and um, in the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and um, I was born in 65. So it really isn't that far away when you think about it. So what's happened since? Well, there's been um, a you know syphilis study at Tuskegee that was conducted between 1932 and 1972. Um, there were some injustices there that impacted African-American men. There was a Family Planning Services and Population Research Act, Research Act of 1970 that impacted Native American women with significantly increased rates of sterilization. And so whenever you hear folks talk about systemic racism that can happen in systems, not in people, that those are some examples that can happen to those that are vulnerable and oppressed. And then lastly, to even today, um, we were, as Kevin and I were prepping for today's session, there was an article that came out um, just on May 16th. Um, there was a study over, over a 22 year period, the US black population experienced 1.63 million excess deaths and much greater loss in life than their white counterparts. The findings um, are troublesome. Um, and the what, we where we land um, as a organization, I believe, and as a healthcare um, institution across the country, um, that that after even though there's been progress, this these years of potential life loss amongst the black population um, indicates a need for new strategies and new approaches. So I think for me, this sets up um, a contrast between where we all are or where we've been and where we hope to be going in the future. And Dr. Ruha Benjamin sets up this contrast. Time as an ethicist, um, I can remember earlier in my fellowship, uh, there were lots of comments about, well, yeah, black patients don't trust doctors. They don't trust the healthcare system. And some different explanations were thrown out there. Anthony mentioned Tuskegee. But really, when we look at the data, we look at the ongoing uh, disparate outcomes. It's not a history thing. It's an active present reality that informs the way that some communities trust doctors, trust the healthcare establishment um, and others um, in the community. So I sometimes bristle against attempts to, well, how do we promote trust in communities? Or do we need to ask ourselves, how trustworthy are we? Um, and what kind of work do we need to do um, as individuals, as professions, and as the healthcare institution? But again, maybe while um, I lean pessimistic, in some aspects, getting all these uh, ethical fires that uh, sometimes come up in the healthcare setting maybe makes one a little grizzled sometimes. I am hopeful. Um, I do hope that medicine, that healthcare, that providence can be this notion of how medicine and healthcare can be a moral force um, on the road to justice. And so this can become really heavy really quick, right? Uh, looking back at this history, looking 
at the current health inequities, the ongoing disparities. Um, this can this can be pretty pretty hard stuff to to wrestle with. And so I sometimes feel the need to look outside for some inspiration or grounding. And I really like this quote by Ken Burns, uh, the great American documentarian, uh, someone who I think as something of a social messenger for us as he points his documentary lens on a given figure, on a given event or paradigm. Uh, really enjoy baseball uh, for all those of you who uh, haven't seen that nine part series. Uh, but uh, Ken Burns um, and other documentarians um, often find things that are both incredibly beautiful in the work, uh, but also troubling. Uh, and some of that um, is, as he describes here, um, in terms of injustices that we see. So in response to those who uh, would sometimes have us think that the exercise of looking back into the annals of the history of medicine or having a, a very sharp lens on what those ongoing disparities and health inequalities might be um, is not faithful to the practice of medicine, um, is not respecting the intentions, the good intentions of why healthcare workers get into the field. Um, and in other forms, sometimes we even go more socially and call that unpatriotic or un-American. Um, I really turn to um, a quote like Ken Burns to say that being an American means reckoning with a history fraught with violence and injustice. Ignoring that reality in favor of mythology is not only wrong, but dangerous. The dark chapters of American history, and here I might add medical history, have just as much to teach us, if not more, than the glorious ones. And often the two are actually intertwined. So I think Burns and others can offer us a third way to both be incredibly faithful and proud of the work that we do, but also deeply uh, reflective and demanding a better way. So here I think is a place where we got to kind of wrestle with justice a little bit. Um, and here's where that moral vocabulary or again, simply a common language really starts to come up. And it might invite for you um, who don't do ethics all day like I do this question. Well, what is even justice? What is this concept that um, we see um, around us in different places? And I went ahead and grabbed some screenshots from some various places about how justice is either defined, how justice is described, ranging anywhere from the Belmont report after some seminal um, research abuses in the history of medicine to documents like the American Nurses Association Code of Ethics. Uh, you'll see here a reference to how Providence describes ethics. And really justice starts to emerge as what the philosophers sometimes call a thick concept. Um, and I think of that in terms of it's not easily reducible to a simple definition, but is complex, is multifaceted, is varied. It's kind of like peeling an onion, right? And so we can talk about justice in a whole range of ways, procedural justice, distributive justice, commutative justice, preferential justice, restorative justice. And again, <clears throat> that's not gonna be helpful for us to go into the definitions of all these different um, kinds of justice with you today, though there are ethics resources that we can get out to you if you wanna go a little bit deeper. But instead of that uh, graduate uh, philosophy seminar version, um, what we want to do here is highlight the depth of this concept of justice and how we rely on constitutive and related images to help us uh, think about justice and do justice work. And already some of you might have seen um, on this slide that we have a couple of images that pop up here. Uh, this, this, this relation of justice to equality, um, but also this notion of equitable or equity. Um, and some of you might think, well, that's not necessarily always the same thing, equality and equity. So how do we even think about some of these concepts that we use to describe justice in ways that I'd like to ask my friend Anthony to talk a little bit about here with equity and equality? Yeah, sure. And this is, uh, I have some unique experience around these concepts. So so as I set this up, one thing about um, how you started the, the our lecture, Kevin, is the book moral vocabulary creating a common language and one thing about this work in the dei space is it's kind of like technology there's nuances and language changes we learn more about each other once upon a time at another company i worked on this big brand campaign in the dei role it was the equality campaign 
Um, and it was one of the largest brand campaigns this company ever had. Um, we're really focused on this notion of we're better on the court or on the field than off of it. A um, couple of years later, we start realizing that, huh, was it equality that we're looking for or equity? Um, we started getting a little sharper. And I've learned a couple real simple analogies of how to di differentiate the two. Um, Non-academic. Equality. Us all starting at the same starting line. Equity. Trying to make sure everybody gets to the finish line. Equality. Everybody in here getting a pair of shoes free and you walk out with them. Equity is everybody getting a pair of shoes that fit. So as we think about equity um, as kind of a mechanism to foster um, outcomes that have justice centered at them, I think it is important to understand that term equity. Um, and at Providence, for somebody that has only been in healthcare in my two years here, looking for avenues and pathways to really integrate diversity, equity, and inclusion within everything that we do. We look for areas of to anchor that work. One at Providence, which was simple, is our mission. Our mission to serve the poor and vulnerable um, and our value of justice. And there was work happening in this organization around health equity, which for me, I couldn't wait to get involved with and contribute to and learn. At Providence, we believe that reducing health disparities, or in other words, fostering health equity among communities that have been marginalized, we believe that growing a diverse workforce that reflects the communities that we serve, we know we serve different communities, and strengthening a culture of equity and inclusion for our caregivers and our patient and the patients we serve is lived out in our mission, our values and makes us better. In Oregon, we integrate our narrative on diversity, equity and inclusion and health equity. That's how we've been talking about it over the last couple of years. As we feel they're on the same continuum and indistinguishable with equity at the center. And it's meant to honor our values, including our value of justice. What are key measures of success in equity, in health equity? Disparity, free care, and outcomes. Simple way to think about it. Key measures of success from a diversity, equity, and inclusion perspective is a workforce that is diverse at all levels and it creates an environment that is constantly, consistently, culturally, I'd probably use the word responsive versus relevant there. Um, and we've been talking about it in those terms with equity at the center. But then in our conversations with Kevin, you know, talking about ethics, we started having a different thought around that key intersection. Yeah, we started to see that, you know, perhaps is a version of what we've been talking about this morning on justice, really where we see some linkages in some of this work of how we're trying to provide disparity-free care across the communities we serve and try to develop a workforce that is diverse, equitable, uh, and inclusive in the way that Anthony's been describing. But then also not seeing just that intersection from health equity and from a DEI perspective, but in terms of our core values at Providence and justice being one of our organizational compass uh, points in terms of how we provide care that is just um, to not only the communities that we serve, um, but Providence's commitment to try to strive for. It's a bit of a stretch, but that health for a better world uh, vision that the organization has. And similar, I saw justice pop up. Um, and again, that's not a surprise as an ethicist in some of our work in ethics and representing one of the four principles that we think a lot about in bioethics or one of the core refrains when we're responding to questions, uh, clinically, uh, ethically difficult questions um, in the hospital, in um, our clinics and in the communities we serve. So justice kept popping up. It's here, it's there, it's everywhere. And so if you add to from uh, DEI, if you add to uh, from health equity, but um, uh, make this uh, Venn diagram even more uh, expansive and include ethics, 
I think it's pretty fair to say that justice is at the middle. Justice is at the center of the work that we do. So quickly, you know, it started to, to emerge to us that maybe this is an organizing concept or refrain um, where justice is itself our moral vocabulary, not a definition of justice that we think the all need to write down and go do, but justice, that thick concept that's difficult to reduce is itself um, our moral vocabulary. And oh, by the way, it also happens to represent a prophetic imagination or that way of seeing in terms of where we wanna go. So we spend a little bit of time looking at that common language around justice. Uh, we wanna spend a little bit of time thinking about that prophetic imagination or that visioning, that way of seeing that can get us to justice. But before we do that, we wanna talk a little bit um, about um, some cases. Um, so we, we wanna set up with you um, this notion of where might we see um, situations that start to get us to think about what justice demands of us. Yeah, we thought the center of our session today, we might just share a case um, through an ethics lens um, and then um, a, a case through a diversity, equity and inclusion lens and then something we've actually been working on together with you. So let's do it, Kevin. Yeah, let's do it. So I want to talk about a case that um, I've had um, in some of my slide decks before. Um, and represents a case that got a lot of media attention back in 2020. Um, so this was very early in the pandemic um, and, and definitely made the airwaves. Uh, but there was a patient in Texas, a um, man by the name of Michael Hickson, um, who a few years before the pandemic, while driving his wife to work, uh, suffered a stroke um, and ended up <clears throat> suffering from uh, quadriplegia um, as a result of his neurological incident and was requiring um, uh, care. He was no longer living at home. He was living um, in an assisted living facility. Um, and like many in congregate care settings, he contracted uh, COVID-19. Back in the day that we were debating about uh, universal DNR uh, for you know questionable um, in-hospital and out-of-hospital survival, uh, looking at what resources we had to scale when we were worried about running out of ICU beds and ventilators, something we're going to touch on a little bit to come. And so at this hospital um, in Texas, um, there were like all over the country uh, questions about, well, this patient who has comorbidities um, now has COVID-19 and what are we going to do? And so why this case um, really got some media attention is because um, a family member had recorded a conversation uh, with the healthcare team. And uh, on, on the audio uh, recording, um, it, uh, the, the, the language is unmistakable. Uh, the treating team um, says to the family, as of right now, his quality of life, he doesn't have much of one. And then the family in responding, you know, what do you mean? Um, is it because he's paralyzed with a brain injury? He doesn't have a quality of life. Um, and the response from the team was affirmative um, in that regard. And so for me, you know, a case like this um, is uh, an invitation to think about not only are we denying care um, on the basis of uh, persons with disabilities, but also even how are we engaging in conversation around what quality of life is and isn't. Um, we've spent a lot of time with our residents since a case like this to talk about Maybe we need to set aside notions of objectively issuing quality of life judgments that are more clinician or team oriented and instead use that as a prompt. What is his quality of life? What does he enjoy doing? What can we potentially get him back to with treatment and what at this point is no longer feasible in terms of how we have a more thick uh, goals of care conversation with the family? But in addition to race, this also brings up ability and disability and starts to remind us that even when we might not see ourselves as identifying, not all of us can see ourselves identifying with a patient or family like Michael Hickson or his family, that we do recognize um, this quote that I find, this off-sided quote um, from the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., that where we see a manifestation of injustice um, is really a threat to justice everywhere. And so a case like this for me, we can uh, take a what's called a structural competency lens. Um, a few years ago um, here at Grand Rounds, 
back when we were doing everything virtually, uh, we had Dr. Seth Holmes, a physician and a medical anthropologist, come and talk to us about structural competency and social medicine. And we can do an analysis of a case like this through what's called a structural competency lens and see aspects that come up like intersectionality. That this man's experience is not summed up by his identity um, as African-American alone or as a man alone or as disabled alone, but at the confluence of all of these identity considerations that itself helps us to ask questions about, well, what is the right care plan for him? How can we support this family? So intersectionality is a complex philosophical um, a concept, but it's also a very practical way that we're in uh, that we can ask ourselves, how do we um, uh, provide care to the people that are before us? But another concept that comes up is that of um, even what do we call normal? What do we call abled or disabled? And the um, social medicine framework offers another concept, which is that of multiple normals. Maybe we can expand our notion of what it means to be normal and think about a society where the built environment was structured a little bit differently and we resource uh, care for some of those who are differently abled in ways that promote their access uh, to social services to promote their access to health and human flourishing. And so what we've done at the Ethics Center um, is we've developed some resources based upon the New England Journal of Medicine's uh, case studies and social medicine series, where we've parked some of these um, important social medicine concepts um, into um, our um, asynchronous um, healthcare education delivery module, where any caregiver, whether you're at home or on night shift, um, can log in and learn about what is this concept called structural inatrogesis, or this concept of biological citizenship, or structural racism? That's something I've heard talked about. Maybe I can spend some more time unpacking that through a case and a case analysis. And oh, by the way, get continuing education credit for it, but not attend a medical grand round session like this, um, but to be able to do the work on your own um, and explore in a case-based and conceptually uh, thick manner. And so we've got these slides um, available to access uh, for any of our caregivers and to be able to uh, uh, get your, your continuing education credit and learn a little bit in the process about how to think about our concept of um, one piece of that complex case of normalcy. So let's take a look at a case from the DEI space and from the workplace setting, Anthony. Yeah, sure. And be before I flip to the slide, maybe I'll set some context for it. Um, you know, workplace setting. And while there's um, all types of dynamics happening in the external environment, one of the things that I really focus on in my work to manage the external dynamics is to focus on making change in the virtual four walls where I can make a difference. And working for a big brand like Providence really allows that. We were talking about common language earlier. So diversity, how I define it, the seen and unseen characteristics and experiences that make us all unique. It's super important. Folks that don't understand kind of what a diversity, equity, and inclusion professional does, the scope of it, you might think that the work is all around fostering um, equity grounded in race or gender or LGBTQ um, type opportunities um, out there. It is that, but it's not just that. It's folks that experience weight bias, ageism, disability. The, the idea is to do work that impacts all of us because we know that when we feel that the work impacts us, more people will get involved with the solution. I, I wanted to share that. As you could imagine, um, somebody that does work that I do, um, I hear lots of cases, not just here, but um, in other companies as well. As, as well. Um, and the um, what I would say in some of these cases examples like the one I'll share now, they exist. And if that's true, a question that folks might have is, what can I do as a person of Providence, as a colleague to help strengthen our culture? One of the things that's super important to me, about me, and I wonder if it's important to you, is when I come to work, feel like I could show up as my best self, because when I do, 
my performance is much higher. So here's the case, Sam. Sam is a long tenured neurologist of Eastern Asian descent who was working near the nurse's station at their ministry. Sam overheard a conversation between five other caregivers at the nursing station. The conversation was centered on one caregiver explaining why Asians don't like McDonald's. The caregiver explained it was because there was not any bug options on the menu. The other caregivers didn't respond to that disparaging comment, but Sam overheard it um, and, and felt uh, the lack of support um, and, and trauma related to that in that moment. Um, Sam approached the caregiver and shared that they're not from Eastern Asia and they don't eat bugs. And more importantly, actually hearing it in that moment uh, caused significant harm in the workplace. And so um, when I hear those um, type of scenarios that can happen, um, questions that we can ask um, as colleagues and people of Providence is how can that experience like impact this person or any of ours just daily work um, to serve um, and care for our patients. What role, if any, do the other caregivers that overheard the conversation in the moment, what role do they have? And what should Sam do right now in that moment? And lastly, how does creating a workplace, us all in the room and on the phone, how does creating a workplace where every caregiver can show up as their best self, honor our value of justice? I, in the past, I never thought about justice as being the driver of solving for these type of scenarios. But if you think about it, you think about harm that can cause any individual, a family member, a colleague. Um, we are looking to create some equitable experiences so we all have an opportunity to grow, thrive, and be successful. And so this is what um, we'll offer, and you know, there'll be time for Q&A. Um, what I find is people actually want to help, and they're not equipped with the tools actually to do it. And I'm just not sure what to say in the moment. Um, and then the moment pass, and you go back, you're like, oh, I sure wish I'd had something to say and help that person. Um, so that's an example of a case, and maybe in the Q&A session, we could talk about um, steps to take to mitigate it. Okay, and then we have one more. Um, and this one is I'm very passionate about, and I knew very little about two years ago, um, but it was really was the genesis of Kevin and I sitting here today, um, and all kudos to Kevin, um, and it's around how we think about um, crisis standards of care with an equity lens. So we wrestled at Providence and in our community uh, with what many other communities and other health systems did, which was a whole range of resource allocation questions engendered by the COVID-19 pandemic. Very early on, you might have remembered questions about, hey, we've got limited PPE. How do we allocate that? How do we disseminate that in the setting of we have family members that want to visit, but we might need to keep that PPE for our caregiving workforce or who gets to go into the room. We had to lean on a lot of our EVS workers and nursing staff to do things that might have been shouldered by others. Another resource allocation uh, dilemma was around life sustaining treatment or around critical bed, care bed access. And this sort of represents what it makes it into a lot of textbooks as a dilemma of how do you allocate the last ventilator, something I certainly had read about and heard some comments, thoughts, principles to guide. But how are we really going to do this now in our community where my family lives and resides? 
at Providence where caregivers that I work closely with are going to have to wrestle with resource allocation questions like this. And so, you know, one of the things that um, that the sort of prevailing wisdom at the time offered is that in a situation where you're about to run out of a healthcare resource, you're about to run out of um, a, a life sustaining treatment, a ventilator, an ICU bed, is to triage, um, is to go to a more kind of battlefield medicine mentality and think, well, who can you save and who can you not and devote resources prudently um, along the lines of survivability. And so that was the prevailing wisdom at the time. And some, as the pandemic started to go on, we were asking these difficult questions from an ethics perspective, from a medical perspective, from a DEI perspective, a social perspective, um, was, is that really a colorblind um, uh, approach to allocate resources that doesn't ask questions about why people are less likely to survive on assessment um, in the ED when they present uh, short of breath and with COVID-19? Um, or what are the, the risks of um, staying with a kind of first come first serve system um, that would privilege people who live close to the hospital or have good access? And so there were a whole host of uh, forces that were asking us to say, um, especially as things like the killing of George Floyd and the social justice reckoning that we started to experience, started to ask us, do we need to update our frameworks? Do we need to look at our um, uh, baseline assumptions and update our thinking in different ways? And so one of the things that we um, we we did as an ethics community and many other um, ethics communities started to do, but not without a lot of conversation, debate, um, dialogue with our clinical workforce, dialogue with our operational leaders, um, is to say we need to think about how survivability and its antecedents, why folks are sick, um, as a way of thinking about how we assess um, in the time of resource allocation, how we prioritize um, folks for access to care. And so one of the things that, that we did in our community, and I'm pretty proud of um, having very late to the game updated some of our thinking, um, is to say we need an equity adjustment to our scoring that doesn't just look at survivability, but also ask the question, What's a marker or a proxy that wouldn't be unduly subjective um, or unduly case-based and biased? And one of the approaches that started to gain traction in different parts of the country was looking at what's called the area deprivation index and looking at um, communities of origin that strongly correlate with health status and health outcomes. And so we kept some of that prevailing thinking at the time around what well, we still need to judiciously use resources in a prudential way, but let's do so in a manner that also is infusing ethic or ethics and equity um, into um, that scoring approach. And so one of the things that Anthony and I worked very carefully on is how do we change our thinking? What algorithms need to be updated around tools that would be used um, to score patients uh, for access to resources? How do we develop processes to do that in ways that mitigate implicit bias um, and other forms of discrimination? And finally, how do we start to educate? And one of the things that we did uh, from our respective quarters is uh, stitch together a, um, a, an educational primer that talked about some of the ethics of this, that talked about some of the DEI components, uh, yoking that to um, some really good resources by the double AMC that they had produced uh, and uh, shared that out with some of our um, uh, leaders on the ground that were navigating some of these questions. So I'm really proud of our work in this space and represented where uh, we acutely saw the intersection of ethics and equity um, at that um, path of justice that we were stumbling upon in earlier parts of the pandemic. <clears throat> So as we uh, begin to close and set up Q&A, we're gonna set up a couple of images, concepts, and resources to kind of help um, bring it together uh, for you. Um, and Kevin, I'll let you start it off. 
So we're going to share with you these two images that we think helps um, provide that prophetic imagination or visioning. And I really love um, this uh, image of viral justice that I mentioned uh, we were going to spend some time on earlier, um, set up by um, a scholar, uh, Dr. Ruha Benjamin. And what Dr. Benjamin describes, and I think helpfully with some of these COVID-19 um, cases we alluded to, um, is a reflection on what we learned during the pandemic and how this applies to some of the social change that we're working toward. Dr. Benjamin says that because if this pandemic has taught us anything, it's that something almost indetectable can be deadly and that we can transmit it without even knowing. Doesn't this imply that small things Seemingly minor actions, decisions, habits could have exponential effects in the other direction. Tipping the scales toward justice, affirming life, fostering well-being and invigorating society. It really reconceptualizes this notion of viral um, in a direction that's positive and towards the change and that visioning that we're trying to do with justice. And what if we thought of the justice in response to as Sam is thinking how to respond to that case or you're caring for a patient um, very similar to Michael Hickson or thinking about if you're co-chairing a task force to come up with the resource allocation um, algorithm for the community to use for uh, scarce resource allocation, how can we infuse a kind of viral justice into that process that can uh, not only be a spark, um, but catch fire? Nice, and then um, another concept is this one of the beloved community. And, you know, when I was talking about the DEI case, it was really centered on here at, at Providence in the workplace. Uh, something that resonates with me in this beloved community concepts takes me back like five years, Kevin, uh, or maybe even longer. Um, that's really when kind of around the Black Lives Matter protests really started when you remember when Trayvon Martin had passed. I remember this um, working at a prior employer and, and employees were like, why aren't we speaking out on that? And then soon after the Me Too movement, if folks might remember around 2016 was kicking off the Women's March. Um, soon after there was a new administration and there was some immigration policies that were impacting the Latinx community um, um, disparately. Um, there was a bombing in the Pulse nightclub in Orlando. And one of the things that I saw this shift was groups that identified with each of them went from just focusing on issues that impacted their group to everybody coming together in solidarity and allies to really make change together. And this analogy I have is like a kid's soccer game, right? Where the ball goes, all the kids go. And I think about the beloved community like that. A community in which everyone is cared for, absent of poverty, hunger, and hate. Dr. King popular, popularized the term during his lifetime of activism. Um, his words, every proposed reform, every moral deed is to be tested by whether to what extent it contributes to the realization of the beloved community. When one can't find the beloved community, take steps to create it. If there's not evidence of the existence of such a community, then the rule to live by is to act so as to hastens its coming. It resonates with me mostly because when I think about our value of justice, it ties so nicely. Our value of justice, justice. We foster a culture that promotes unity and reconciliation. We strive to care wisely for our people, our resources and our earth. We stand in solidarity with the most vulnerable, working to remove the causes of oppression and promoting justice for all. Our sisters really had this figured out and what a call to action. So we wanted to leave you with uh, a few resources here in terms of you want to continue on this journey of thinking about justice and these respective ethics and uh, DEI spaces. Um, Anthony has um, some resources that he and the uh, regional DEI team have offered. 
Uh, we certainly have some um, at the Ethics Center as well, so please don't hesitate to reach out to us. Um, we've got the uh, web link and the um, email box for our respective programs up here. But as we actually right on time hit uh, Q&A, um, we'll just wrap here with the formal didactic part of the presentation to say that from a standpoint of what we were trying to uh, sell to you today, uh, it's justice. That's our common language. It's not a particular definition of justice, a concept, an image of justice, but it's justice is that common language. And that how it flows from small acts of viral justice, building the beloved community is something that might be how we look ahead and look to the future, look to the horizon as we're responding to those very real situations that vex us today. And it's that that helps us become trustworthy, not telling communities, telling patients, you got to trust us, but how we become trustworthy as ethicists, as DEI professionals, as doctors, as nurses, as the healthcare workforce to become trustworthy um, to the communities that we serve. So with that, we'll wrap and we're interested in what your questions, your comments, your insights are, um, and we'll try to both uh, look in the room as well as in our virtual room um, as well to see what wisdom is starting to emerge. Thank you. Thank you both so much. It's really inspiring to hear your words and the shaping of the vision for the future. Um, the vignette around Sam really resonated, and I feel like as a physician, often I'm in a room with a patient who may have a different point of view that I would love to adjust or create a little more spaciousness around how they're viewing something. And I was struck by this idea of viral justice where you're kind of saying just a small tweak. And I felt like your presentation was very gentle. You're not kind of insisting that we go all the way from here to there, but that we maybe take a step in the right direction. I'm curious your thoughts about when it's time to make a small tweak versus when it's time to just say it like it is and really kind of course correct or take that book and throw it out and get a new one. And I'm thinking both about individual interactions with a patient. Also in my role, Anthony, as you know, with sepsis for the region, trying to, I have a few hospitals that are not having equal outcomes when I look through the lens of race mm -hmm. and ethnicity. Would I, as a leader, march in there and be like, y'all are, having a health inadequacy or would I gently, gently plant a seed and wait a few years for it to be harvested? I'm just not sure what's the right course. Yeah, no, well, thank you for the question. And I think don't misunderstand my getting sharp on language as a signal to not aggressively work to close disparities. I, I wanna make sure I say that. Um, you know, when I joined the organization, there was work around equipping ourselves with tools to interrupt instances of like bias and discrimination or microaggressions, caregiver to caregiver. But one of the one of the things I would hear from um, our, our patient facing caregivers is what happens when a patient does it? One of the things that um, we've wrestled with, not in Oregon, but across the family of organization is relooking at our patient rights and responsibilities, what those policies are, and how we um, look at them anew um, and ensure this is where I'm wondering how many of our ministries are aware of this. Uh, we've created some tools to help answer that question when things come up with our patients, and it's always done with grace. Um, one of the things that I would offer is um, for us to um, equip ourselves with that tool, because I think when we have, when we're equipped and are confident with how to address those issues, it actually happens quicker than you think. It's when we're not equipped and we have common language and approaches to address them 
Um, and so one of the um, resources that was under the diversity, equity and inclusion column in the prior slide, um, I intentionally put that there. New patients rights and responsibilities. Not only is it public, you, you'll, what you'd see in it is responsibilities um, that we have to patients that come in our door, that they're going to get culturally responsive care, world class. But we actually, they're also going to, there you have a responsibility patient around discrimination um, and harassment to our caregivers um, because we want to create a safe environment for our caregivers for them to do amazing work. So could you do me a favor? If you haven't, look at that. There's a SharePoint um, in that um, site. It's on, um, it's on the Providence website. And if you see gaps in it, hey, I see it, Anthony. This really isn't helping. Can you reach out to me? Perfect. And while you ask the question to Anthony, I can't but piggyback if I could. Um, you know, I one of the, the the pairings between these concepts of viral justice and the beloved community um, is is not unintentional in terms of the prophetic imagination uh, that that harkens to biblical images in terms of the Jewish and Christian traditions around the prophets. And the prophets, y'all, were not exactly the most liked in their community. And, you know, there's a saying that a prophet was never at home in their, you know, home community because they were oftentimes very critical and alienated themselves. And so I do think that a prophetic imagination as we think about justice can sometimes invite, you know, some questions about maybe this does become a little bit sharper. Maybe the moment of that viral seed is a bit of a bolus of justice in the moment. Um, but I, I do think that um, justice also in my mind, in the reading um, and the study that I've done, justice often emerges in community. And when the prophets had it right, and when maybe we have it right, it's not that we are the lone voice for justice, but that we're building community to be able to do that justice work together. And I wonder if there's a connection between data around sepsis outcomes and communities where there are unequal outcomes and the building of a community to respond um, in more, not wait three or four years type manner, but, but wrestling with that now. We do have a couple of thoughts online, um, but if it, we got another rich question in the room, we can stay there. All right, so I have a question here that says, as an internist, I see a lot of disparity in what medications I can prescribe for whom due to cost. This will likely cause significant disparity. With a lens of equity, what work is Providence doing to advocate for patients in the cost of medication? It's a great question. It is a great question. That's a great question. I, I, I wish my teammate uh, Kristen Downey, um, who who's, uh, is our government public affairs person, leads advocacy, was here. It's a great question, but I can't answer that. Or our health plan partners mm -hmm. to be able to talk about from a, a plan perspective how they're approaching this. Um, I think it's fine for folks to say that that's um, above our pay grade um, mm -hmm. and that we need to um, go to the parking lot um, for that one. But um, that's an important question. It is justice work that we can mm -hmm. um, get, get a response to. Christiana, you want to get the mic? Yes, thank you. I'm a very seasoned family nurse practitioner and I currently work with Express Care the retail clinics, and I've been in the virtual space for three years. To respond to your um, this issue about medicines that this internist asked, we use GoodRx a lot. I've worked mm -hmm. in all, so many areas of healthcare, from private, you know, all levels of government, there's uh, FQHCs. So the, there is, there's always going to be some disparities and it's never going to be perfect, but helping people with like things like GoodRx, that's a very simple solution. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then we have to fill out prior ops authorization. So there are steps already, I'm sure this person knows, to advocate for better um, care, but I'm sure there's a lot of more work to 
Mm-hmm. And I will follow up mm-hmm. and, and get an answer out yeah. to that caregiver. And, and your response about Rx makes me think of the initiative that Providence is also doing with Civica Rx, which is the um, entity that was formed by some nonprofit health systems to try to create a pipeline um, for some of those um, very common generic drugs that have difficult access points for some of our patients. Uh, that's work that was announced a couple of years ago, and I don't know the progress of that, but I know that was an initiative that not just was Providence was doing, um, but was uh, linking arms with some other um, nonprofit health systems to try to address that. Right. One of the things from the pandemic, there's just there was so much swirl and rock and rolling going on that, so it seems like a lot of patients are advocating more, like for experimental uh, cancer inclusion. Uh, yeah. So there's so much good going on, and I could talk for hours, but I won't. Can I just want to mention one thing? I love both topics. Is I think you're predecessor, Anthony, brought a a topic in 2016 that helped me a lot about the focus on time. I've always loved cross-cultural relationships and been in this DEI space long before it was DEI. And the point, there's so much focus on efficiency. So I won't open that Pandora's box, but it's huge Mm -hmm. because when your value as a clinician is placed on a number, for me, it's volume per hour. I am passionate. I am excellent. I would do my best. But when you're being evaluated by a number primarily for your work, that causes a lot of moral distress. Thank when you you're working that. with interpreters, when you're working with complex families, a mother with three sick kids on a virtual service, and always this value of if by keeping it to a certain time for efficiency, that's something that needs to look at looking at too in terms of justice. Thank mm, you. Thank you. My commentary here. Yes, thank you. And with that, we are two minutes past time. We will wrap, and I'm usually in the position of thanking our speaker, but as one of the co-speakers, how about we just thank you? Thanks for being here. Thank you.